a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Pam, the state of Texas is now in a lawsuit against a federal law, and it's an interesting suit. At issue is whether a child can be adopted by foster parents, which the state of Texas argues, or whether a federal law called the Indian Child Welfare Act requires that the child first be placed for adoption with a Native American tribe. And what's at issue, of course, is this child would be or is a member of that tribe. Because his biological parents, one of his biological parents was a member of the tribe. That's right. So this pits Texas, which is arguing that this federal law is a racial classification and unconstitutional, among other arguments they make, against a desire to respect the integrity of Native American tribes. And we have with us today, Joe, some guests. Our first guest is Greg Oblowski. Greg uh, joined our faculty in 2015. He has a JD, a law degree, and a PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania. His specialty is the West and issues regarding Native American sovereignty. Fun fact about Greg, he also likes eating unusual regional food, often with the mystery ingredient, from what I can see, of Spam. So So uh, that's more Hawaiian than anything else. Well, Greg is learned on this as in other things. And maybe, Greg, one day we'll have you to give us a little guide of regional food. But today you're going to help us look at this issue. And joining us as well is Jared Crum. Jared is a third-year student at Stanford Law School. He's co-president of Stanford's Native American Law Student Association, and he's also one of Greg's students and has been involved in a number of pro bono projects related to tribal rights. So thank you both for coming. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us here. Let's get back to the case that Joe was talking about, the Brackeen against Zinke lawsuit. How do lawsuits like this come about, and What's the law that's driving the litigation here? To understand the Indian Child Welfare Act, we have to go back, as is often the case in this area of law, not so far back, not all the way back to the 1700s, which is often what I end up doing, but back to the 50s and 60s when there really was an epidemic of state social services coming in and taking away children out of Native homes. In some states like South Dakota, North Dakota, something like half of Native children were actually being taken away from their birth parents and being placed with non-Native families. And a lot of that had to do with the failure to understand Native culture, the idea that the child might be with an aunt or grandmother, and that was normal in Native culture. They saw that this was not, in fact, a nuclear family and thought this was a harm that needed to be remedied. And so Congress stepped in in 1978 and passed passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, which explicitly attempted to remedy this problem. And the Indian Child Welfare Act has a number of provisions, but I think the key thing to note is that it gives a lot of the jurisdiction over cases of of Indian children, which is a term of art in the statute. These are children who are either eligible for membership of the tribe or are members themselves. It gives primary jurisdiction over those adoption decisions 
to tribal courts. And so that's different than the usual run-of-the-mill where it's state courts that decide custody issues for children or decide adoption and like. And we have this terrible history in the United States that goes back also to this, the what were called the Indian schools where children were taken away and sent across the country. I mean, Jim Thorpe is probably the most famous example that people have heard of. And they were given new names and they were given new religions and their hair was cut and they were forced to wear Western clothes. So what caused Congress finally to start caring about this? There was a moment of tremendous change that happened really in the 60s and and into the 1970s when we enter what is often described as the era of self-determination. That was after really centuries of failed federal policies that attempted to assimilate tribes like the boarding schools that you described, Pam, or in the 1950s, a policy that was called even termination that involved extinguishing tribal sovereignty altogether. Through tremendous native activism, you know, some many people might be familiar with the occupants, uh, the occupancy of Alcatraz. Through the native activism, they were able to push the federal government to change its policies and adopt a policy in which native peoples would decide for themselves the course and future that they would have. And so, the Indian Child Welfare Act was part and parcel of this important historical moment. So, in the facts of this case, Greg. What tribes are involved and what do they say and what does Texas say? The particular tribe that the child is eligible to be a member of here is the White Earth Ojibwe, which is actually a tribe up in North Dakota. But the Navajo Nation and other tribes have intervened in the case. And they're really seeking to protect this law, which they see as a bulwark on protecting tribal sovereignty and the integrity of, of their relationships with their members and their families. Now, Texas has taken up a position that has become increasingly widespread. We first saw this in Arizona, where a a conservative think tank called the Goldwater Institute launched a a litigation effort against the Indian Child Welfare Act. And and it's really a two-pronged strategy, both of which are based in the U.S. Constitution. One is the argument that Congress doesn't have the authority to enact this under uh, the Indian Commerce Clause, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But the other argument is that because this statute distinguishes this class of children called Indian children from other children, it is in fact based on a racial classification. Uh, and, and as Pam, <laughs> as you both know well, uh, racial classifications get strict scrutiny under federal law, which would make it harder to, for this statute to survive. And and you filed an amicus brief in this case, or what's your position? So I've done some historical research on actually both of these questions, both about the scope of federal power and about this question of uh, racial classifications. So the amicus brief that I filed with a number of other federal Indian law scholars focuses on that first question about the scope of, of federal power. But I've also done some recent research on uh, from the 18th century around the time of the drafting of the Constitution about classifications as Indian. And is it racial? Is it something else? What do you conclude? Well, to understand that, we have to go back to a case that predates the Indian Child Welfare Act called Morton versus Mankari from the 1970s. And in Morton versus Mankari, there was a very similar challenge that was happening uh, to a classification as Indian, in this, pre- in this case for the purposes of hiring at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And there, the Supreme Court said that because this classification is directed toward people who are members of a federally recognized tribe and not all people who might be considered racially Indian, 
it was a political, not a racial classification, and therefore it didn't get strict scrutiny. It merely had to be tied to Congress's trust responsibility toward Native peoples. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Greg Oblovsky and Jared Crum about uh, contemporary issues involving Native Americans and constitutional law. And Jared, I wanted to bring you into the conversation to, you know, uh, uh, Greg was just talking about his amicus brief, and you've been working on something called an amicus brief project. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. The Native American Rights Fund, which is one of the big legal organizations that advocates for Native people's rights uh, around the United States, has a Supreme Court project. Uh, and one of the things they like to do is have law students around the country look in the lower federal courts, see what Indian law cases are pending, what cases could potentially present interesting or important issues, uh, and put it into a database for the project because the project has a lot of work to do, um, but it's not the most well-resourced area of um, the, the legal world. and It's not the wor- most well-resourced um, uh, thing that, that – the, not the most well-resourced uh, advocacy group. So it's important to have students there. Uh, so that they can research and see what cases are pending. So uh, and, and, f- and know a little bit about the cases before they get so far along that people like Greg can't even step in to try and help out. That's right. I think as, as Professor Blavsky alluded to, there's a lot of other groups out there that are also interested in Indian law, and they have a different agenda than tribes necessarily do, and they have a different goals than tribal sovereignty. So the sooner that NARF uh, and the sooner that the Indian law community can look at these cases and see what's coming down the pike, the better. Jared, what has this meant to you to do this? I want to put you on the spot here a little bit. Stanford Law students have lots of opportunities. You're spending your time with this. It's important to me because I am a member of a federally recognized Indian tribe. I'm a member of the Kickapoo tribe of Oklahoma. So, you know, when that's part of your background, when that's part of who you are, these issues strike you in a more personal way. Uh, and you've seen what it can mean to people on the ground to have tribal sovereignty be something that their tribe has. Uh, and you see what it means to people to be able to have their culture, uh, which for a long time flourished and then was said to be uh, and enforced, enforced through law uh, to be lesser than other people's cultures. It's good to see uh, people advocating to restore that to its rightful place. Thank you. Uh, I want to get back now, Greg, right before – uh, we had a little break. You were talking about a case that concluded that the term Indian, and we use this term because that's the term that's used in the law and in the Constitution, the term Indian was thought to be political and not racial, but you've researched it, and what do you conclude? Well, what I tried to do is figure out When the word Indian was put into the Constitution in the first place, uh, what did people think that it meant? Was it political or racial? And what I came up with is that it's very difficult to to separate them. That is, people at the time thought of it both – thought about the category of Indian both as political and as racial. But I think it's important to draw a distinction here. So wider Anglo-American society undoubtedly thought of this category of Indian as a racial category. They in fact often talked about – contrasted Indians with white people. But the people who were the political elite, the Anglo-American leaders, contrasted Indians not with with whites but with this other category that they called the U.S. citizens. 
So they thought of Indians as distinct from as a citizenship category, distinct from from U.S. citizens, and I think that's important when we see how this term is used repeatedly in the early statutes and treaties defining this area of law. It's usually in opposition to this idea of citizenship, and that signals that at least the people who were drafting the Constitution primarily thought about these questions in this political terms. That that's not to suggest that this racial rhetoric didn't exist; it was widespread. Um, but I think it's important to separate out the different kinds of discourse. That these definitions emerge from. So one response to Texas is to say there's a pretty good case that this is not racial; it's political or something else. Uh, I'd like to ask each of you to comment on another part of the case. We've been talking about highfalutin rhetoric here. There is this little kid. He's, I guess, two from what I've read. Uh, often the law just has a standard kind of the what's best for the kid. And uh, the foster parents have been caring for him. The birth parents in this case uh, apparently want the foster parents to adopt him. How do we balance that? How do we think about that? It's a tough issue, and uh, it's understandable that it would divide people, even people who are often of the same political persuasion. Um, but what's important to note is that what you point out is that often what we're going for in child adoption is the child's best interests. That's the paradigm that often rules. And uh, ICWA is based on the idea that the child's best interest is the same thing as the child being with the tribe or being with uh, at least a native family. Uh, because one of the things that uh, a native child gets uh, if a native child is with a um, a member of their tribe or another native family is the sort of uh, cultural education that you might not get and that was um, very hard for Indian children to get, say, mid-century when they were often placed with white homes. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Jared Crum and Greg Oblovsky about Native American rights. Greg, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, I just wanted to add briefly... Often people, I think, are confused about ICWA and they said that it mandates a particular outcome. I think it's important to stress that ICWA is primarily about process and procedure. So all of the preferences in ICWA can be departed from from what the statute calls good cause. But the point is that there has to be a process and that the tribe has to be able to participate in that process. So it's not purely about what the outcome is. The law does not say this child has to end up with an Indian family. The law merely says that when that decision is made, the tribe has to have a seat at the table and they have to be part of these discussions. And one of, one of the things you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the kind of constitutional history is something that's always really interested me. Um, and it's an issue that is coming up in a slightly different form this time around again, which is how the census handed out uh, seats in, in Congress. So in the initial uh, the initial constitution was lots of people focused on the notorious three-fifths clause, which counted slaves as three-fifths of a person for purposes of allocating seats in Congress. But Indians didn't count at all. Native people didn't count at all if they were not taxed, which essentially meant if they were still part of a tribe as opposed to people who decided to just completely assimilate into uh, into um, U.S. Uh, white culture. 
Um, and the other thing that amazed me when I first started looking at this, because I do voting rights related stuff, is that in Arizona, uh, people who were tribal members weren't able to vote until 1948. Can you tell us a little bit about that history as well? So I think it goes back to the conversation that I was having with Joe a minute ago, which is that because Native peoples were often assumed not to be U.S. citizens, they were placed outside the boundaries of American society. Uh, it's not until 1924 that all Indians are given U.S. citizenship. And as you suggest, Pam, it wasn't until much later that many of them got voting rights. And the reason for that was that they were understood to be wards of the federal government. That is, because of the extensive power and responsibility that the federal government had, the idea was that they couldn't possibly be interested or have a role in state politics. Uh, and so this, this challenge of figuring out Natives' multiple memberships, both within their own communities and as part of the broader society, that's been a real challenge because, uh, again, the, the ideas of sameness and difference sort of play out in very complicated ways here. Yeah, I, I, it, it does seem to me that it, it's almost as if um, members of tribes are getting the worst of both worlds. That is, it used to be that we said they were political and therefore they couldn't vote. And now we're saying, no, they're not political. It's a racial issue. And therefore the tribes shouldn't have any real say in uh, how custody decisions are made about native kids. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, I've seen that across the board, actually, that the, the categories get manipulated and change often in ways that harm uh, Native interests. Uh, and I think we see that at the Supreme Court as well as in, in some of the lower court decisions. So, Jared, you mentioned earlier that the project you were working on is a project for NARF, the Native American Rights Fund. So is there a lot of good legal coordination among tribes in dealing with these issues? Or on a lot of these issues, does it turn out to be uh, one of the tribes ends up litigating the issue, and it's only very late on that other folks find out that this is an issue or a problem. Well, as to the first part, I think the answer is often yes. You have the National Congress of American Indians. You have the Native American Rights Fund. Those organizations are old. Um, so one is older than the other, but they both have a, a long and storied history. And there is coordination that goes on between them because a lot of tribes uh, have common legal interests. That's not to say that tribes are all the same. There's 500, there's over 500 federally recognized Indian tribes. So naturally, they'll sometimes diverge in their interests. Um, but as to their coordination, I think the coordination, uh, especially recently, uh, has been broader perhaps than in the past. We'll be back with more from our guests, Greg Oblowski and Jared Crum, talking about Native American rights next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Greg, or before the break, we were talking about a case, Brakeen versus Zinke. And one of the aspects of the case is the federal government's authority to regulate tribes. And as it turns out, there are not one but two commerce clauses in the U.S. Constitution. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about the differences and talk a little bit about the so-called Indian Commerce Clause. So – for a long time, the Indian Commerce Clause has been read by the U.S. Supreme Court to give the federal government what is called plenary power over this body of law called Indian Affairs. Uh, and plenary power basically means the federal government can by and large do what it wants. And that was in part responsible for some of the 
the historical injustices that Pam was referring to earlier. But it has also been the foundation for statutes like ICWA and these other more recent laws that have sought to protect tribal interests and sovereignty, particularly against private individuals and against states. So it's a double-edged sword for tribes. Uh, in class, I call the federal government the tribe's frenemy uh, <laughs> because of this sort of dual nature that the, and role that the federal government has played throughout history. Yeah, I mean, the federal government, it turns out to have sometimes to treat Indian tribes as foreign nations almost with treaties, and then it disregards the treaties even more than like pulling out of NAFTA or pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We had a lot of practice with that, with some of the, the treaties with the Indian tribes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So that's why this challenge, part of the Brekin case, is challenging whether Congress even has the power to enact this statute. And the amicus brief that I co-wrote really focused on pointing to the broad basis within the text of the U.S. Constitution for upholding this authority. So I argue that it's not just about the Indian Commerce Clause, but about all these other provisions, the Treaty Clause that Pam just referenced, the Supremacy Clause, aspects of what is called the Property and Territory Clause. And if you look back at the, the group of people that we now call the Framers, they really had a holistic understanding, and they really sought to prevent the intervention of states in this area, similarly in some ways to the, the way that they sought to prevent states from interfering in foreign relations. They had the same fears. I think it's important to remember how much power Native nations had at the time that the Constitution was drafted. They, were they had tremendous amounts of military power. They defeated the United States in the very first battle that they have against the United States in, in 1791. Yeah, and one of the other things that, you know, you're such an expert on the time of the framing is Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment and the ability to enforce equality for Indians. That's where, for example, the parts of the Voting Rights Act that provide special protection to Native American and Alaska Native voters come from. They don't come from the framing so much as the idea that you have to protect uh, tribal members from the kind of prejudice they often uh, face in the states. Yes. I mean, I think it's important to emphasize the ways that uh, Reconstruction both altered but also maintained that earlier legal framework. There was some discussion around the drafting of the 14th Amendment. And actually, you referenced the Indians not taxed language. Right. They, they put there. that back into the, yep. the 14th Amendment. And there's a case soon after the adoption of the 14th Amendment that says, no, Indians are still not birthright citizens, uh, even after the adoption of this, this amendment that seeks to overturn Dred Scott. Yeah, it wasn't until I started doing some work on Indian voting rights that I started reading these cases like the case, I guess, it's from Nebraska where the guy goes to vote in 1870. They say, no, you can't vote. You're not a citizen, even though, yes, you live in Omaha just like, every, like, like everybody else. Um, Jared, I wanted to get back to you to talk about some of the work you've been doing in addition to the, uh, br the amicus brief project gain it, gathering all the cases for NARF. You've also been doing more direct services style pro bono work. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we've done two trips now up to the Yurok Reservation, which is in Northern California. It's just a few miles south of the Oregon-California border. It's a really beautiful area of the country, but it's also a part of the country that has a high level of uh, need of all types, including legal need. Uh, and so what we've done is NALSA has the Native American Law Student Association, our Stanford chapter has organized two pro bono trips up to the Yurok Reservation. Uh, last year we went up and we did a criminal record expungement clinic, um, which is so important for making sure that members of Indian nations can thrive and interact in the economy, get jobs, rent apartments, all that. 
Uh, and this year we did a wills writing clinic to make sure that Native peoples can retain the property that they hold, not just real property, which we often think of when we're thinking of wills, but also personal effects and cultural patrimony, which is important to make sure it gets passed down to your descendants as well. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Jared Crum and Greg Oblowski about Native American rights. And I just wanted to follow up a moment, um, which is you said you went up to the reservation, and is there generally no legal are legal services generally available on the reservation, or is it far away and hard to find lawyers? It's both. It's hard. It's far away and hard to find lawyers, but they also have legal services already there. So it is far away. It's remote to major metropolitan centers, so it can be hard for people to get legal services or to get affordable legal services. That said, they already actually have a terrific Department of Justice in the Yurok Nation, and the Chief Judge Abby Abenanti is terrific. She's award-winning. And the justice system that they run there is very connected to the people, and it's excellent at settling disputes in a culturally sensitive and culturally appropriate and culturally competent way. And that's exactly what we like to see. We like to see tribes exercising exercising sovereignty. And one of the things you do when you exercise sovereignty is you have a court system like any other sovereign, and you use it, and theirs happens to be really good. So we kind of see ourselves as supporting them. Yeah, I, I, I think – the the point you're making is a really important one, which is with respect to adjudicating issues that come up within the context of the reservation, you can have a tribe that does a great job of that with its own justice system. There are a number of tribal supreme courts around the country that are very well respected. And the expungement stuff you were doing was outside of that system because they had to deal with the California state legal system as well, right? Yeah, that's, I think, a theme that's kind of under underlay our whole discussion here. Tribes and states are always interacting with each other, and they often come into conflict because they're both sovereigns within our constitutional system. They're both subnational sovereigns, and so they naturally can sometimes clash on these policy issues. This was an opportunity for us to use California state law to help tribal members, which was really good. Jared, I'm, I'm a little bit entranced about the notion of this separate tribal justice system. Can you say what struck you as the best thing about it or the most surprising thing about it? I like the size of it. It's very connected to Yurok. The um, main justice, quote unquote, at the Yurok Reservation is right near everything else. Um, and you can just walk in the front door and you can have – you obviously have to go through a process to get your case adjudicated, but you can. And, and the thing that really impressed upon me just how connected the justice system is to the people at Yurok is the fact that in their main courtroom, they have a conference table and it's separable into four or six different tables. But when you put them all together, the pattern that it makes on the table is the Klamath River, which is everything to the Yurok people. So I think that kind of shows just, just kind of shows the ethos that goes into their tribal justice system. Thank you. Greg, you have a pro bono project with the tribe that involves, of all things, coming up with the tax code. Yeah. So we have, we've had a group of students who have been doing some work, uh, doing legal research and assistance for the tribe, trying to help them. I think it's important to stress just how central resources are. Jared, I think, alluded to this. And the jurisdictional complexities of Indian law make taxation a real challenge and have forestalled the economic development of many Native communities. And so we think that this is a really important work that, that we're helping the tribe do. I want to thank you both for being here. We looked at a, a case which has to be riveting for everyone, pitting what we normally might 
unreflexively think of the best interests of the child versus the notion of getting the tribe and tradition in at the table to decide custody issues to how the federal government regulates tribes and how they should regulate tribes. Thank you for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the Sirius XM app.